going to start our time by reading to you from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. About ten years ago, when I was in Bible college, there was a big controversy around a book by a guy named Rob Bell that had come out. It was called Love Wins. And Rob Bell was a very well-known, fairly respected, kind of especially in in the circles of, of younger Christians. He was an influential speaker and teacher, pastor of a large church. But this book that he wrote, Love Wins, challenged the traditional teaching of the church on judgment and hell. His, his teaching in this book essentially was kind of showing some of the chinks in the armor that were part of that idea, but, but also came to a place where he said, ultimately in the end, everyone is going to be able to go to heaven if they want to. That there is, there is a way where everyone can be saved. That uh, he was called by many to be a universalist. Many threw out names of heretic, that this man who was once kind of this influential, kind of the golden child of like up and coming new trends in, in Christianity among young people, a great influential teacher, was now the, the poster child of going the wrong way. He was a heretic, he was a universalist. And this was, this was a, a big thing going on when I was in Bible college. So I remember buying the book saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and hold my judgment until after I read it. I remember sitting in my dorm room and reading Love Wins. And I remember some of the, the really fantastic things it was showing me of, 
of how maybe people in the first century understood what Jesus was talking about when he talked about hell. And, and there, were, there were parts of it that were really convincing, especially on, a, on an emotional level. Like I remember one point in the book where he, he asked, so Gandhi, right, this, this fantastic man who led a, a, nine, a non-violent resistance movement against the occupying British in India, this guy who helped kind of liberate India from British colonialism and seen as one of the great peacekeepers of our time, Rob Bell asks, so Gandhi's in hell right now? Or I remember him asking the question, quoting 1 Timothy 2, where it says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then asking the question, so does God get what God wants? It sounds weird to say no to that question. Today, in continuing our Life and Doctrine series, we're going to talk about judgment and hell. This has been a, a major area of doctrine, of, of thought throughout Christian history. And uh, I've struggled this week. This has been a, this has been a rough week to, to be thinking and working through the topic of hell and judgment. So my desire this morning as we approach this subject is not to kind of beat you down into kind of submission to this doctrine about uh, eternal torment. My desire isn't to kind of force you into compliance. My desire is for us to work together through what it looks like to, to come to terms with believing something that we don't want to believe to be true. That as we seek to follow Jesus, there are going to be things that we're confronted with that he teaches that make us really uncomfortable. That we would probably prefer not be the case. That in fact, we're going to try to find like every other option before we actually come to terms with it. What does it look like to follow Jesus and to come to terms with things that we don't want to believe? Like a belief in hell. I like listening to podcasts. I'm a, I'm a big podcast guy. And before the pandemic, I don't remember, it was two years ago, three years ago, pre-pandemic is just kind of like a wash for me. But I remember listening to one of my favorite podcasts. It's called This Cultural Moment. And it's two pastors, one from Portland, one from Melbourne, Australia, talking about kind of the, the, the culture and the way society is changing and how Christianity speaks into those kind of things. And I remember where I was when I was listening to this. Has this ever happened to you? Like, headphones were in. I was walking from here to Lucky Bean. And I was right about, like, along the sidewalk, right by Copper Bottom. And I remember one of the, one of the pastors on the, on the podcast saying how there was a, a time in his life, in his 20s, where he was starting to dabble into different kind of controversial areas of theology, starting to kind of get in some like questionable territory. And he had a mentor who was speaking into his life who, who sat down with him and he said to him, Mark, be careful of believing what you want to believe. And when I heard that, for some reason, that like, that punched me in the gut. Be careful of believing what you want to believe. 
Mark Sayers, the, the guy from the podcast, he continued by saying this. I have this up on the screen in response to this. He said, that was such a gift to me at that moment. Because I could fall into a Christianity where I believe what I want to believe because I'm a guy from Melbourne in my 20s and I'm going to end up with some Melbourneish progressive theology. At that point, I thought, hang on. I need to go back to Scripture and I need people speaking into my life. A big thing that we need to wrestle with this morning is that it is going to be easy for us to believe the things that we want to believe. It's going to be easy to slip into believing a certain idea or a certain take on judgment or hell or things like that that sound more convenient for us. We'll react emotionally to different ideas. We think that we're very logical people, but great sociologists and psychologists will tell us that that we probably respond emotionally before we respond logically or rationally. One, one psychologist that I read his book uh, a couple years ago said, we are like, our, our reason and our emotions are like uh, a person trying to ride an elephant and trying to steer the elephant. The elephant is our emotions and the driver is our reason and logic. And, and you don't steer an elephant, you correct its direction. So he said, our emotions are going to go one way before the driver does anything. And our intellect and our reason is going to just have to correct where the emotions go. But it's a whole lot easier to just follow the elephant where the elephant wants to go. When we are working through these difficult ideas, there are going to be ways where we emotionally react and we will want to go where our emotions go before we allow ourselves to think about it, before we allow ourselves to submit to what God says about it. And we're shaped emotionally by all kinds of things. Like we're shaped culturally in a way where in the West we value individualism in a way that that is putting it higher on the list than it probably needs to be. And so emotionally we will tend to gravitate towards things that that elevate the idea that I get to choose my own way. And and I get to be kind of the captain of my own ship and, and choose my own destiny. We're shaped by our culture that way. We're shaped by our family of origin where maybe we'll react in certain ways. Uh, The example that came to mind for me is is we will react certain ways around alcohol if we had a dad who was an alcoholic. And so our family shape how we react emotionally to things. We react emotionally sometimes because those ideas implicate us. We will react emotionally before logically to a certain maybe tax policy if that tax policy is going to implicate our tax bracket in a way that we don't like. We react emotionally when things make us uncomfortable, like wrestling with the idea that God would condemn people to hell. We're more willing to accept ideas if we want them to be true. But here's the thing. We're called to be truth seekers. And so that means we are going to have to make the choice to submit our emotions and our desires that we're not just going to try to find answers that, that check the box of that aligns with my desire and what I want to be true. But to say, I'm willing to submit to how God has revealed himself. 
through the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. I'm willing to say, okay, God, I don't fully understand, but I'm going to trust you on this one. And we also want to be those in seeking truth who want to speak the truth of Scripture to ourselves and to others around us in our culture in a way that doesn't demean them, that doesn't diminish them, that doesn't belittle their concerns with beliefs that we hold or what the Bible says. We want to seek truth, but we also don't want to hit people over the head with it like a two-by-four. We want to be genuine and authentic and, and conscientious of how we communicate difficult truth that we have to wrestle with. So, this morning as we talk about this this reality of judgment and the topic of hell, let's go to the scriptures. We're going to look primarily at the words of Jesus about this issue because Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the New Testament, which sometimes we like to think of Jesus as he's the the easy to get along with guy. He's the one who doesn't say hard things. But if that's our idea of Jesus, we probably haven't spent much time reading his words. First thing is, Jesus taught that there would be a judgment at the end of the age. I'm going to point us to Matthew 25, part of what I read earlier. That says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before them and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats that there will be a judgment that takes place when Jesus decides to return, where he will will have all humanity that is dead, that is living, rise and stand before him, and he will sit as the judge. This will happen at the end of the world as we know it, before the inauguration of new creation. We're going to get into that next week. Jesus also taught that he would be the one who judges the nations. So there will be a judgment, and Jesus is the one who is the judge. I'm going to turn us to John chapter 5, where Jesus himself says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Further on in verse 30 it says, By myself I can do nothing, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Here's here's what's significant about Jesus' words here. First of all, if Jesus is the one who judges, it means that the one who is willing to give his life and suffer the penalty for our sins is the person who's going to be the one judging that the character of the one sitting on the throat and making that decision is one who is willing to die for us. That impacts me. That shows us the heart of the judge. That, that shows us what he desires. And it shows us the worthiness of that judge. That he was one who was sinless. That he was one who, who though he was innocent, took on a criminal's death that God saw him as blameless and worthy, and so he was raised from the dead. We have a judge who is willing to die and a judge who is worthy 
to sit on the throne. So much better than if you and I were on that throne. Because I know myself and how partial of a judge I am. Listen, I want to think that I'm an unbiased mediator and then in conflict with people, I, I can just be a neutral third party. It doesn't work that way. My emotions and my desires and my agenda get in the way all the time. Jesus says, my judgment is just and that he judges to please the one who sent him. What's beautiful about this is Jesus' judgment, when Jesus sits on the throne as judge, it is not a judgment that is swayed by partiality. It is not a judgment that is bribed, that is corrupt, that is swayed in any way. And it is not the Son kind of doing his own rebellious things separate from the Father. That as Jesus sitting on the throne judges, he judges in the, in the perfect centeredness of the will of the Trinity itself. We have a perfect judge who will judge justly. It makes me think of, uh, you know, I, I used to watch the, the TV show Suits and other like law dramas where there was always this question of like what judge is going to be uh, presiding over the case, Right? And if this is a judge that's kind of on your good side, it, it may be more favorable for you going in. We don't have an impartial judge. We have a judge who judges perfectly. Jesus also teaches that we will be ultimately judged by our allegiance to Christ. I use the word, word allegiance there instead of faith. If you were here a couple weeks ago, I, I talked about that nuance, that it's not just about believing the right things, but my allegiance to Jesus is saying, yes, He is King. He is my Lord. And that allegiance is evidenced by the fruit of our lives. Let me, let me say that again. We will ultimately be judged by our allegiance to Jesus, and that allegiance is evidenced by the fruit in our lives. We're going to hang out in John 5 again, verses 24 and then later in 28 and 29. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Down in verse 28 and 29, he says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, will come out, and those who have done what is good will rise, to, to life, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Here's what I want us to draw out of this. Is as Protestants, sometimes we have really wrestled with the language in the New Testament of, okay, we are saved by our faith and not our works. And then all these instances of judgment where we are judged by, well, those who have done good will rise to life, and those who have done evil will will rise to be condemned. But I think it's very important that we understand that, that the New Testament is not pitting faith and works against each other in the way that sometimes as Protestants, we put them against each other. In fact, the whole book of James is saying, listen, if you are genuinely a follower of Jesus, if you have faith in Him, we're going to see good works. It is the fruit of that tree. In fact, these, these two passages here, are, it's like the same breath that Jesus is saying. So you have gone from, from uh, death to life 
If you have believed in the one who has sent me, your faith has saved you, and you will also be judged. The genuineness of that faith will be judged by the fruit that is there. We, are, we will be judged by our allegiance to Jesus. And that allegiance is evidenced by the faith or by the, by the fruit in our life. Jesus, in his teaching about judgment, described two outcomes to judgment. One being eternal life and the other being hell. Again to Matthew 5 where I started this morning. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the hard part. And this is, this is what I really want us to dig into this morning. It is to understand what scripture actually says when it talks about hell. Because I think a lot of our, our thinking, our understanding of this topic is shaped a lot more by kind of Dante's Inferno, this like, this, this, poem, this great work of literature that, that has shaped a lot of the, the thinking, religious thinking in the West. It's shaped by Hollywood or TV or movies or the weird preoccupation with the occult and demonic. Or it's shaped by things like ACDC and rock and roll lyrics that talk about hell's going to be a great place because all my friends are going to be there. What does scripture say? What does Jesus say? when we talk about this really uncomfortable topic of hell. Well, we're going to get to the Greek first. The word hell in the New Testament comes from the Greek word Gehenna. And this was a Greek word that was often translated as hell in the New Testament. When you see the word hell, the word is Gehenna. And it is a noun that comes from a Hebrew phrase. So it went from Hebrew to Greek, translated into English as hell. In Hebrew, it was Gehenom, which means the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was outside Jerusalem, and this was a place that uh, in, in the Old Testament, we read the darkest moments of Israel's history. King Ahab and King Manasseh sacrificed their own children to pagan gods there. It is like the, the, the hot spot of darkness and evil in the story of Israel's history. Like the lowest point of their story is the, the kings, the leaders of Israel sacrificing their own kids to foreign pagan gods. So throughout kind of Israel's imagination and thinking about what judgment means and looks like, the, the valley of Hinnom became this, this way of talking about, well, whatever judgment is like, it's going to be something like this place. This evil, cursed place where the worst things have happened, where um, it, it was a place that was seen as accursed and condemned by God. Some later scholars, like a thousand years after the time of Jesus, would write things like the Valley of Hinnom later became a, a garbage dump where uh, you know, refuse and trash and even bodies were thrown and burned. This was something that Rob Bell picked up in his book as one of his ways of, of trying to kind of dismiss the language we used of hell and said Jesus just used hell as, a, as an illustration. It's like the garbage dump where there's always a fire that's burning. The problem is, is it wasn't a garbage dump in Jesus' day. 
the sources we have that suggest that are from a thousand years after the time of Jesus. But the way that Jesus describes Gehenna, the way that he uses the, the Jewish terms for hell, he describes it as an eternal fire. He describes it as outer darkness. He describes it as a place where there is weeping and the gnashing of teeth. He uses the language of lake of fire, of an abyss, the language of destruction, of second death. And as we hear this, I want us to, if you're with us when we preach through Revelation, to put on kind of your Revelation hat. It might be a tinfoil hat. (laughs) And, And while we were working through Revelation, we were very much dealing with, okay, when we hear of these images... How much do we take of it as, okay, this is like a literal depiction, or these symbols are trying to communicate something to us? Like, it's very difficult for us to reconcile it both as an eternal lake of fire and also a place of immense darkness. Like, that just doesn't compute. But, But what are these images trying to convey to us? what we need to know is that hell is a place that was created for Satan and his angels where they will be condemned. It is not the devil's playground or the devil's kingdom. Contrary to kind of the popular notion of like, this is the devil's kingdom, his place, where, you know, you you see the cartoons and, and you go down and you're in a cave where there's a guy in a red suit and a pitchfork and like he's the boss now. The devil's not the boss of hell. He's there condemned, if not more than everyone else. It is not a place that is better than heaven because your friends are there. Jesus describes it as a place that is full of uncomfortable and terrifying and difficult imagery. He uses it as a warning, especially against religious people, to be careful of how they live and what they're living for. We can't get around the fact that the New Testament, and especially Jesus, teach and talk about hell. We we, we can't get around it. It's there. It's on the page. And we have two options because of that. One, we can pretend like it's not there and that it doesn't exist. And we can just try to be blissfully ignorant. The second, we can face it, wrestle with it, and live in light of it. And I am suggesting we go for the second. That we actually face up to it, we wrestle with the difficulty of it, and live in light of it. And this is so important because what I feel like is going on right now, particularly with with people who grew up in the church in my generation, is this thing called deconstruction. Where there are many, many people who grew up in the church who have had difficult topics like this swept under the rug and they've just kind of festered in the back of their mind unaddressed for years 
and then finally something happens in their life or the, the anxiousness of just, I can't deal with it anymore, resurfaces and, and they start picking it apart and their whole faith falls apart. One really prominent example of this is a guy named Marty Sampson. He, he used to be a, a songwriter uh, and worship leader with Hillsong. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of the songs that we sing on a monthly basis, if one of them was written by him. He recently went through, probably a year or two ago, a, a severe deconstruction where he went from a very prominent Christian figure in kind of the worship music scene to being someone who has rejected his faith because of things like this. And in kind of his, I'm just putting it out there, letting people know Instagram post, this is what he said. I have it up on the, on the screen for us. He said, how many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. I think, though I disagree with, with, with his conclusion, I think Marty is, is picking at something that we've done because these topics are uncomfortable. Because we don't want to be like the, the angry Bible thumper. We stay away from these topics and they're swept under the rug and we don't talk about them and then when they finally do come to the surface, we don't know how to process it and deal with it. I want to talk about it. I, I, I want this space to be a place where we can work through tough issues like this. But it's super easy not to. Super easy to say, let's do a, a series about doctrine and not talk about hell and judgment it would be a lot easier to listen to. But we need to talk about it. We need to be reminded. And like, this week has been tough for me to talk about it and work through it. Uh, back when Rob Bell wrote his book, Love Wins, shortly after Francis Chan, another very prominent Christian figure, wrote the book Erasing Hell which was kind of the response to Love Wins, of saying, all right, this book has kind of made the rounds and has been very popular, and a lot of people are being convinced by this. We need to re-examine what the Bible says about hell, and he and a guy named Preston Sprinkle worked through and wrote that book. I devoured that book this week. I didn't read it back in 2011 when it was written. I read it this week, and it's been heavy. It's been heavy because I've been reminded of this thing that I have so easily swept under the rug for years. This kind of thing that I want Christianity to be attractive to people as much as possible. I want to be able to say, come, it's great, the water's fine kind of thing. Let's pretend that hell's not a thing so that it's as easy for you to get in as possible. But then I've been reading this book this week and dealing with this subject this week. And it's made my heart break, honestly. Like, I've had to wrestle with this again and come to the, the fact that, man, there are a lot of people who are choosing not to follow Jesus and it doesn't end well. And I don't want to have to believe it, but it's there. The reality 
of judgment and hell is going to cause us to do a few things. This is what it's caused me to reflect on this week. First of all, it's going to cause us to want to make sure that we know Jesus. To be confronted with this reality again, this thing that we've so easily sweeped under the rug, it's uncomfortable, it implicates us, and it's going to require us to ask the question, is Jesus my King? The good news is that we have a God who, though our sin is condemnable, Though he is holy and we are not, though humanity through our choices has corrupted his creation, he has taken the step towards reconciliation and to bring us into the family. We have a God who has come in the flesh and lived in our stench and squalor and our reality of human life and gave his own life, though he was innocent, for your and my sin. He knows what Tyler has done the filth of it, and the the corrupt nature of my heart and my mixed motivations, even as a pastor. And he died for it on the cross. And so the invitation is there for you and I, that we can live the kind of resurrected life forgiven and made new as we follow our King Jesus. The question is, will you follow him? Will you follow him into life? Will you let him work in your heart to make you new, to bear fruit in your life so that you, in helping the least of these brothers and sisters, are worshiping Jesus as you do it? Are you sure that you know Jesus? If you don't, I would encourage you today to spend some time to to pray, to reflect, to ask Jesus, listen, I've been in a weird place. And maybe I've had this church background and I know about you or I'm coming to terms with with who you are and there's still a lot of things I don't understand, but I want to trust you. And I want to follow you. And I know that my sin drives me nuts and I hate it and I pray that you would forgive it. And I want to trust you and live for you. If that's you, lean into that today. Don't let the awkwardness of this moment pass by without that hitting you. The second thing, as we are confronted by the reality of judgment and hell, it should cause us to be missional. It should cause us to share Jesus. I remember hearing from uh, an atheist as he was talking uh, in an interview with a Christian saying one of his biggest criticisms of Christianity is we have pushed the uncomfortable stuff under the rug, not been upfront and honest about it, And then we're not telling people about the life that's available through Jesus. He's saying, listen, bear your baggage and show me the hard stuff. And then do the loving thing by trying to get me to to follow Jesus. He said, the most hateful thing you can do if you believe in a hell is to not be someone who is sharing Jesus. 
to not let the offer be communicated and open. So the question's for us. Are we spending time with people who don't believe? Are we living our life in such a way where we are are showing people Jesus with both our words and with the choices and life that we make, our, our life and our doctrine? Are we looking for ways to point people to the hope and life and forgiveness and cleansing that is found in Jesus? The third thing that being confronted with the reality of judgment and hell is as followers of Jesus, it's going to require us to trust God's justice and to have a level of humility when we don't understand. There's a line from the conversation that Abraham has with God when God is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. It says, will not the judge of all things judge rightly? I don't understand exactly how hell makes sense. I don't have the full picture that God does, though. I don't see the big picture. My view of what justice is is shaped by my culture and my family and what I want to be right. And what I need to do is come to terms that God's justice is perfect. He's the one who defines justice. And so I will learn to say, okay, I'll trust you because you've proven yourself to be trustworthy. I'll put my faith in you because you've proven yourself faithful. And you are a God who has given yourself your own life for my sins, so I'm going to trust you. You've got the track record to prove it, and so I'll trust you. You call me your child. You can handle my questions. And so I'll probably wrestle with the reality of hell for the rest of my life and trying to make sense of it, but I'll trust God through that wrestle. I'll trust that he's still good. I'll trust that his idea of justice is bigger than mine. And I'll try to have the humility to say, even though I don't understand, I know you're good. I know I can trust you. You can handle my questions and my griping and all of that. There is a reality of judgment that is coming. There is a consequence for our sin. But how much more glorious does that make the reality that God has made a way for us? That in in the verse that, listen, whether you grew up in the church or not, you know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. This is why we're here. Because he loved us enough that if we place our faith in him, if he's our king, 
and we can have life. Let's lean into that even as we wrestle through the difficulty. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you're good. I trust you even when I can't fully make sense of it. And God, honestly, I would love to stand up here and say everything in full confidence, full stop. This is, this is what we should do and believe and not have difficulty with it. But you know that we wrestle. You know the controversy of this belief in the world that we live in. And God, you know the, the, the crazy price that you paid to free us and forgive us from our sin, to make us new. God, would you help us not to, not to sweep this under the rug constantly and not let ourselves be faced by it? God, it's so much easier to never talk to someone about you when, when this is just always swept under the rug. God, I thank you for the cross and that you made a way. You call us your child and that is an invitation open to anyone. That anyone who places our faith, who calls you their king, is welcome to take and, and enjoy the benefit of your sacrifice for us. Help us to live as people who display, who share, who, who live out that message.